Namaste, Namaskaram, Vanakam, Namo Namaha. Continuing with The American Dream, Waking Up, a book I published in 1993, Chapter 3, Native Americans. All of the quotes in this chapter come from the research done on Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee by D. Brown, published in 1970. Native Americans, Chapter 3. It is traditional in many cultures for spiritual masters to work intimately with their disciples. And when fully qualified, these enlightened disciples are sent out to spread the truth they have learned and experienced. However, it was and still is tragic that through ignorance, millions of Christians, after simply reading a few passages handed down through the centuries, felt compelled to go out and spread their message as they perceived it. These sincere, yet sincerely misguided, held on the tip of their tongue biblical verses and chapters such as Mark 16.15, Genesis 1.28, Deuteronomy chapter 12, and Psalms 2.8.9. Armed with these and other beliefs, they set out to spread the word, subdue the land, the animals, destroy other religions and cultures, and to break and enslave the heathen. It did not matter that earlier held view of a flat earth was disproved. Many took Revelations 28 literally, believing that the earth consisted of four corners, thus flat, or that Psalms 93 was moved aside after Columbus's, quote, discovery, unquote, of the, quote, new world, unquote, the Europeans continued their voyage of arrogance, this time landing on the shores of what was to be the new continent, quote-unquote, America. In the beginning, the early colonists and the Native Americans seemed to get along well. In fact, the Natives looked upon the early settlers at Plymouth more as helpless children and helped them to get through their first winter. The Native Americans shared their provisions with the colonists and taught them necessary survival skills. However, as continued waves of immigrants poured into Indian land and claiming more and more of it for themselves, violence was inevitable. Ironically, it was the Native Americans' love of individual freedom, one of their four great commandments, that impressed the first explorers to America. Being so repressed in Europe, when these explorers returned with glowing reports of a paradise, free from the tyranny of kings and social orders, many were instantly infected with wonderlust. Therefore, the founding fathers in American democracy probably owe its largest debt to the, quote, Indian founding fathers, unquote, who by their example showed the newcomers a free way of life. Obviously, the repressed immigrants craved this lifestyle. Unfortunately, their appetite quickly became insatiable. Ironically, it did not take long for the new immigrants to establish a new order and hierarchy, not unlike the repressive situation that they had fled from. Only now, the tables were turned on the repressees 
took on the role of repressors, staking their claim. Congress in 1834 established a, quote, permanent Indian frontier, unquote. The Mississippi River was basically the dividing line, with everything west of the river belonging to the Indians. One supposes that the Indians probably could have lived with this huge chunk of their land being taken by the newcomers. However, as we know all too well, even this was not enough. With God on their side and the other G factor, the discovery of gold, this, quote, permanent, unquote, boundary kept getting further and further west until it virtually disappeared. The invaders wanted it all. Growing up in America, many are taught to believe that the pilgrims, the founding fathers, American government and policy, and Christianity were all noble and honorable individuals and institutions. This has been and continues to be, to a great extent, the perception in many history books. This is also the perception that is programmed into the minds of young and old alike in the majority of Christian churches and organizations. One cannot deny that much good has been done by many of these people and institutions. The lifestyle that many in America lead is a testament to a great spirit of progress that the new colonists brought with them. However, one cannot deny or dismiss the tremendous injustices and destruction that was wrought. One has to wonder how much more the newcomers could have learned if they had respected the native inhabitants. How much violence, then and now, could have been averted? How much safer and cleaner would America be today if many had listened to what the native inhabitants, who knew how to take care of the land and raise respectful offspring, had to say? One wonders how much more compassion and understanding there would be in the world today if many of these immigrants had not been blinded by religious dogmatism and greed, often masked as, quote, the Protestant work ethic, end quote. We are all familiar with the positive side of American history from the white Christian point of view, much of which is valid. However, not to present all sides of the picture is to live in a dream, an illusion. We have heard the white man's dream, to be fair, let us listen to the red man's story. What possessed the new settlers in the Indians' country to arrogantly claim the land and resources for themselves? To drive the native inhabitants off their ancestral land and round them up into little more than concentration camps called reservations? What was it about many whites that made them so passionate about destroying the Indians' culture and religious beliefs? As a side note, does this sound familiar with today's yoga, completely divorced from Hinduism, and marketed by non-Hindus, creating a massive, spurious yoga business industry? Hmm. Superintendent of the White River Agency, N.C. Meeker, was a typical example of the mindset of the times. Meeker was obsessed with converting the Utes to the white man's ways. He felt it was his God-given mission to enlighten the savages, as he called them. Meeker hoped to end the Utes' lifestyle by taking away their horses so that they could not hunt for food. 
He tried to force the Indians to plow fields and construct buildings, and when they would not work, he would deny them rations, exclaiming, quote, I shall cut every Indian down to bare starvation, end quote, if he will not work. Meeker wanted the Utes to call him father, but the Indians thought him a fool and called him Nick out of disrespect. The Utes wanted nothing more to do with Nick and the white man's ways and continually rebelled. Their defiance prompted the editor of the Denver Tribune, William B. Vickers, to write an article praising Meeker's efforts and denouncing the defiant Utes. Quote, The Utes are actual, practical communists, and the government should be ashamed to foster and encourage them in their idleness and wanton waste of property. He, Meeker, went to the agency in the firm belief that he could manage the Indians successfully by kind treatment, patient precept, and good example. But utter failure marked his efforts, and at last he reluctantly accepted the truth of the border truism that the only truly good Indians are dead ones, end quote. That was an article in the Denver Tribune. Amazing. As the invaders gradually moved west, they planned to slowly remove the Indians and relocate them further west into, quote, Indian territory, unquote. However, the selfishness of many whites would too often expedite these moves. When gold was discovered in the Appalachians, the Cherokees were forced off their homeland and marched west in 1838. On this infamous, quote, trail of tears, unquote, one out of every four Cherokee died from exposure, disease, and or hunger. A similar fate awaited the Seminoles, Chickasaws, Creeks, and Choctaws in the south, and the Delaware, Shawnee, and Huron in the north. Manifest Destiny soon obliterated this, quote, Indian permanent frontier. As the invaders continued to march west, so sure of their superiority, and biblical right to claim everything as their own, regardless of the means. In 1860s, the U.S. Army invaded the southwestern Navajo country and set up their first fort in the area, aptly named Fort Defiance. The soldiers grazed their horses around the fort and instructed the Navajos to keep their animals away from the Navajos' own land. And when the Navajos' animals inevitably wandered into the area, they were shot. From then on, the trouble between the Navajos and the army only increased. In 1862, more soldiers moved into the area from California under the command of General James Carleton. Carleton possessed a real attitude against the Indians, as he stated, quote, There is to be no council held with the Indians, nor any talks. The men are to be slain whenever and wherever they can be found. The women and children may be taken as prisoners, but of course they are not to be killed. End quote. Kit Carson, who at times was friendly with the Navajos, was ordered by Carleton to march against them. Carson's plan was to get rid of the Navajos by destroying their crops and livestock. Carleton made a game out of this scheme by offering prize money for captured cattle belonging to the Navajos. 
To further prove their macho-ness, the soldiers also began collecting the scalps of the Navajos, a custom some believe was first introduced by the Europeans. Even this bounty was not enough for Carlton, as he soon ordered for every Navajo male to be taken prisoner and declared, quote, This war shall be pursued against you if it takes years now that we have begun. Until you cease to exist or move, there can be no other talk on this subject, end quote. Finally, starving and dispirited, the Navajos surrendered. Many of the dejected Indians were forced to walk long distances to other forts in the southwest. Many died en route from the cold and from hunger, while many others were rounded up in adobe compounds and bleak reservations such as the Bosque Redondo Reservation on the Pecos River. Bosque Redondo was such a horrible place that even the new superintendent, A.B. Norton, pronounced the place unfit for cultivation with water, quote, scarcely bearable to taste, end quote. Hundreds of Indians died on these forced marches and in the prison camp-like reservations. Fully dependent on the government, stripped of their way of life, many died of disease and hunger, and probably more than a few from a broken heart. Sioux, Cheyenne, and Arapaho In the Midwest, the Santee Sioux met with a similar fate. When the whites moved into Minnesota, they took much of the Sioux land, and in return the army at least offered to dole out supplies to the Indians. However, when even this meager form of payment was occasionally denied, the Sioux attacked, but to no avail, as they were finally defeated by Colonel Henry Sibley and his men. President Lincoln issued an order to execute many of the Sioux prisoners. All former treaties were withdrawn, and in 1863 the first shipment of the once proud Sioux were transported to the Crow Creek Reservation in Dakota Territory. Many of these new white settlers in Minnesota came to see the Indians off, quote-unquote, shouting abuses and throwing stones. Crow Creek, like so many of the reservations, was an inhospitable land, and by the end of their first year in their new, quote, home, unquote, the area around the reservation was covered with fresh graves. Meanwhile, in the West, the Cheyenne and Arapaho were beginning to suffer the effects of manifest destiny. The Treaty of 1851, quote, secured, unquote, the Platte Valley for Indian habitation. With the discovery of gold at Pikes Peak in 1858, however, nothing could keep out the hordes of greedy miners. Lean Bear, a Cheyenne chief who had previously been given a medal and papers by President Lincoln, showing that he was a friend of the United States, heard that the Cheyenne had been attacked near the South Platte River. Lean Bear and others went to Fort Larned to investigate. However, as the chief rode forward to shake hands, with the approaching soldiers, he was shot off his horse. A skirmish ensued that left several Cheyenne and soldiers dead. In another brutal incident, Colonel John M. Shivington, a former Methodist minister, was on patrol looking for stolen horses when he encountered Cheyenne horsemen. 
the Cheyenne had with them one horse and one mule they had found as strays. Without giving the Cheyenne a chance to explain, the patrol opened fire. Subsequently, Colonel Shivington sent out a patrol under Lieutenant George S. Earye to raid the Cheyenne camp at Cedar Bluffs with orders, quote, Kill Cheyenne whenever and wherever found, unquote. It was incidences like these that forced the Cheyenne to retaliate, which seemed to please Colonel Shivington, who was quoted to have declared, quote, he was not authorized to make peace, and that he was on them on the warpath. This despite the fact that the Cheyenne did not want to fight the whites, as Chief Black Kettle exclaimed, quote, It is not my intention or wish to fight the whites. I want to be friendly and peaceable and keep my tribes home. I am not able to fight the whites. I want to live in peace, end quote. Even Major Edward Wincop of Fort Lyon, who at first was suspicious of the Cheyenne, finally, after meeting with them, came to realize that they did want to live in peace. As the Major was reported to have said, quote, I felt myself in the presence of superior beings, and these were the representatives of a race that I had heretofore looked upon without exception as being cruel treacherous and bloodthirsty, without feeling or affection for friend or kindred, end quote. Major Wincoop even pleaded with Colorado Governor Evans to hold a council with the Cheyenne. The governor replied, quote, But what shall I do with the 3rd Colorado Regiment if I make peace? They've been raised to kill Indians, and they must kill Indians, end quote. Finally, Colonel Evans conceded to hold a council with the Cheyenne and Arapaho chiefs at Camp Weld outside Denver. After bantering back and forth over who started what, Colonel Shivington said that as long as the Indians were so fond of Major Wincoop, they should all make camp near his fort. Major Wincoop's friendliness towards the Indians put him at odds with other officers. He was then swiftly replaced by one of Shivington's officers, Major Anthony, in November of 1864. Sand Creek Major Anthony was a good example of what the Indians meant when they said that the white man spoke with a forked tongue. Anthony adopted a friendly attitude when speaking with the Indians, and at some point suggested that the Indians be permitted to go out and hunt buffalo near Sand Creek. Of course, they would receive full protection by the military. Within days after the Cheyenne and Arapaho left Fort Lyon, Colonel Shivington and 600 men met with Major Anthony at Fort Lyon. The two old friends discussed the Indians and talked about, quote, collecting scalps and wading in gore, end quote. Not everyone agreed with what the two zealots planned. Several of Anthony's officers protested the proposed heinous attack to which Colonel Shivington, remember the former Methodist minister, violently exclaimed, quote, Damn any man who sympathizes with Indians. I have come to kill Indians and believe it is right and honorable to use any means under God's heaven to kill Indians, end quote. On November 8th, Shivington and Anthony's men, more than 700 strong, moved out. 
The result is the infamous massacre at Sand Creek. When Black Kettle heard the approaching soldiers, he ran out in disbelief, waving both an American and a white flag, and urged his tribe to gather around him. Helpless, hundreds of Indian men, women, and children were brutally mutilated, murdered, and scalped. Approximately 500 Indian men, women, and children were killed that day. When Shivington was brought before a military inquiry board, he was asked why he killed the children as well. Shivington replied, quote, Nits make lice, end quote. Later in Shivington's life, when he was on speaking tours, he reportedly exhibited hundreds of Indian scalps, as well as the pubic hair of Indian women. Apparently, he delighted the audiences as he retold war stories, which in his mind must have been fond memories of the good old days. The following year, after the Sand Creek Massacre, Cheyenne, Sioux, and Arapahoes joined forces and retaliated, raiding white settlements. Then in the summer of 1865, a commission was sent from Washington to negotiate a new treaty. The motive of this new treaty was to take away all of the Colorado Territory from the Indians, because of the gold being mined there. The Indians were told that for their benefit, quote-unquote, they would be better off south of the Arkansas River, and in return the government would agree to a, quote, perpetual peace, end quote. In this same summer of 1865, troops under General Connor began a campaign to eradicate the Indian to the north in the Powder River area of Wyoming. Connor decreed that the Indians, quote, must be hunted like wolves, attack and kill every male Indian over 12 years of age, end quote. In August, Connor's men proceeded to the Tongue River where hundreds of Arapahoes were camped. About 50 Indians, men, women, and children were killed as the troops stormed the settlement. The rest of the surprised Arapaho fled in terror. Looking back on their village from the safety of the nearby hills, the Arapahoes watched as the soldiers looted and burned the entire settlement, including the Indian supply of food for the coming winter. Black Hills In 1868, the Black Hills, being considered worthless by the government, were given to the Indians as the Treaty of 1868 declared, quite, no white person or person shall be permitted to settle upon or occupy any portion of this territory, the Black Hills, or without the consent of the Indians to pass through the same, end quote. However, a few years later, gold was discovered in the Black Hills and another rape was initiated. With miners pouring into the area by 1874, the government tried to avert a war by sending a commission to basically steal back the Black Hills. It was also during the 1870s and the continuing genocide conducted by the U.S. government against the Indians that the War Department began a concerted effort to eliminate the Indians' commissary, quote-unquote, the buffalo. It was customary in formulating these deals that these commissions included not only officers and politicians, but traders and missionaries as well. The Reverend Samuel D. Hinman was the religious dealer on this particular mission. 
The deal was for the government to borrow the hills, and after the gold was removed, the Indians could have it back. In other words, the government wished to lease the land, or if the Indians wished to sell, they would be given $6 million. Subsequently, $500 million was taken from one mine alone. The Indians thought that the offer was ridiculous and refused on both counts. Temporarily defeated, the commission went back to Washington, but the war machine was just getting warmed up. In late 1875 and the early part of 1876, Washington ordered all Indians onto the reservation and began operations against hostile Indians. In the spring of 1876, many tribes that had gathered around the Tongue River area began to move west in search of antelope and grazing land for their horses. An estimated 10,000 Sioux, Cheyenne, Hunkapas, and others were camped peacefully in the valley of the Little Bighorn. In June of that same year, word reached the Indians that General Custer and his army were headed right for them. Custer employed Major Reno to attack the south flank first, and the rest is history. This was a humiliating defeat for the U.S. military. Retribution, however, was swift. Even though the soldiers attacked first, the government immediately claimed all rights to the Black Hills and Powder River country, explaining that the Indians had violated by going to war the Treaty of 1868. To appease the Indians, Washington sent another commission composed of a group of seasoned negotiators, among them Reverend Samuel D. Hinman and Bishop Henry Whipple. In classic denial, the bishop addressed the Indians, quote, My heart has for many years been very warm towards the red man. We came here to bring a message to you from your great father. First, that you shall give up the Black Hills country and the country to the north. Second, that you shall receive your rations on the Mississippi-Missouri River. And third, that the Great Father shall be permitted to locate three roads from the Missouri River across the reservation to that new country where the Black Hills are. The Great Father said that his heart was full of tenderness for his red children, and he selected this commission of friends of the Indians that they might devise a plan, as he directed them, in order that the Indian nations might be saved, and that instead of growing smaller and smaller until the last Indian looks upon his own grave, they might become as the white man has become, a great and powerful people. End quote. Needless to say, the Indians were against and aghast at this unabashed deception and, quote, logic, unquote. The plan, of course, was to move all the Indians onto a reservation on the Missouri River, of which Red Cloud, the Ogala Teton chief, said, quote, I think if my people should move there, they would all be destroyed. There are a great many bad men there. They have bad whiskey, therefore I don't want to go there. End quote. Another Indian, No Heart, made the observation that, quote, you travel up and down the Missouri River and you do not see any timber. You have probably seen where lots of it has been and the Great Father's people have destroyed it. End quote. The Indians resisted the move to the Missouri River, but finally, after threats of taking away all their possessions and rations, the Indians succumbed. 
Forced to sign away their sacred Black Hills, the U.S. Cavalry arrested all the male Indians, confiscated their guns and ponies, and herded them off to Fort Robinson. Nez Pierces, and please forgive any pronunciation here, mispronunciation. And it's interesting that today, with many football teams changing their names, um, they're showing some respect for the indigenous Indians. And as Hindus, we would certainly hope that this will someday happen with those people who are stealing yoga from the Hindu religion. The Nez Pierces were a peaceful tribe that welcomed the first white men into the beautiful Northwest Territory. However, as more and more settlers moved in, and with the discovery of gold, their land was systematically stolen from them, but not before several bloody battles. In 1824, missionary work among the Nez Pierces increased. The Church of England was closely affiliated with the Hudson Bay Company that controlled the Northwest Territory. The Anglicans targeted the Indian children in hopes of reeling in the adult Indian population. Of course, the all-too-prevalent connection between God and gold was apparent in this plan. Governor Simpson of the Columbia District openly stated that it was good business to convert the Indians, which also meant that they would be more in need of the goods of the white man, which of course meant increased revenues for the Hudson Bay Company. In 1885, the U.S. military finally triumphed over the once-friendly Nez Pierces. They were subsequently shipped off to Fort Leavenworth in Kansas and Colville Reservation in Washington State. In 1904, the Nez Pierces' last great chief, Chief Joseph, and it's a shame that he took on a Christian name, died on the reservation. The coroner reported that he died of, quote, a broken heart, unquote. Sitting Bull. In 1875, the government pressed hard to have all the Indians, quote, confined safely, unquote, on the reservation. However, Sitting Bull, the great Hunk Papa Sioux chief who had fled to Canada, was still a threat and an embarrassment to the U.S. in that he eluded capture. With continuing pressure by both the Canadian and the U.S. government, Sitting Bull finally submitted to the authorities in July of 1881. He was supposed to have been granted a pardon by the U.S. government. However, he was captured instead and held as a military prisoner at Fort Randall. Similar treatment as a result of broken promises by the U.S. government awaited the other great chiefs. Geronimo, for example, who, along with his people, spent his remaining years in a Florida prison where many Indians died from the inhumane treatment and unaccustomed to climate. The government planned to divide up the larger Sioux reservations into smaller ones, which would leave more land available to the white settlers. A commission to negotiate the deal was sent from Washington. Among the commissioners were Newton Edmonds, expert in stealing Indian land, and the Reverend Samuel D. Hinman, old hand at doublespeak. Reverend Hinman bullied and tricked the Indians into signing away 14,000 square miles of their land. However, when he and Edmonds returned to Washington, many questioned their methods. A new commission, headed by Senator Dawes, was dispatched 
and Sitting Bull was released to meet with the Dawes Commission. The Commission purposely disrespected, purposely, excuse me, disrespected Sitting Bull's position as chief by permitting other Indians to speak first. Sitting Bull walked out. After being persuaded by other Sioux, Sitting Bull met with the Commission for another attempt at a peaceful solution to the land deal. The distinguished Sioux chief apologized for his previous behavior and explained how much he desired peace, but felt that the white man failed to keep any of his promises. Instead of respecting this great chief, the commission, led by Senator John Logan, exclaimed, quote, I want to say further that you are not a great chief of this country, that you have no following, no power, no control, and no right to any control. You are on an Indian reservation merely at the sufferance of the government. You are fed by the government, clothed by the government. Your children are educated by the government. And all you have and are today is because of the government. If it were not for the government, you'd be freezing and starving today in the mountains. I merely say these things to you to notify you that you cannot insult the people of the United States of America or its committees. The government feeds and clothes and educates your children now and desires to teach you to become farmers, to civilize you and make you as white men. End quote. Subsequent to this council, officials tried to ignore and discredit Sitting Bull further. However, later in the summer of 1883, the Northern Pacific Railroad celebrated the driving of the last spike in its transcontinental track. The officials thought it would be appropriate for Sitting Bull, because of his popularity, to deliver a speech welcoming the president and other officials. A young army officer who knew the Sioux language was to translate. However, when Sitting Bull rose to speak, he said the following in his native language, quote, I hate all white people. You are thieves and liars. You've taken away our land and made us outcasts. End quote. Realizing that only the interpreter knew what he was saying, Sitting Bull paused several times to accept the audience's applause. When he finally sat down, the embarrassed officer recited what the chief was supposed to have said, which brought thundering applause. Government officials naively thought that Sitting Bull had finally seen the light of the white man's ways and organized a tour for the chief that included stops in 15 cities. In 1888, the government attempted to divide up the Great Sioux Reservation into smaller reservations, which would allow for 9 million acres to be left open for white settlement. The government offered 50 cents an acre to the Indians. Sitting Bull thought that this was a ridiculous offer and declined. The government did not want to openly break yet another treaty but rather decided to coerce the Indians into signing by threatening to take the land by force with no money offered. Finally, in August of 1889, without Sitting Bull's consent, the other chiefs, intimidated by the threats of getting nothing at all, agreed to sell. Ghost Dancing In the autumn of 1890, a Paiute Indian, Wovoka, introduced the ghost dance, which was actually a religious ritual of peace. Its doctrine of nonviolence spread throughout all the reservations. However, the dancing Indians frightened the reservation agents and the soldiers. 
The Commission of Indian Affairs felt that Sitting Bull was behind this pernicious system of religion and ordered that he be arrested. Interestingly, when the Christian missionaries went to Hawaii, they banned hula dancing and surfing, put the people in Western clothes. Amazing similarities. The military grew more apprehensive about the ghost dance religion and moved troops into Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota and into Standing Rock in North Dakota, where Sitting Bull was located. An order was issued to take Sitting Bull prisoner, and in a skirmish that followed, the once great Sioux chief was shot in the head by an Indian policeman. Grieving over Sitting Bull's murder, hundreds of Sioux left Standing Rock for Pine Ridge, led by the last great chief, Red Cloud. The Sioux joined Bigfoot and his... Minijoanos, excuse the pronunciation, to journey south. Along the way, the Indians encountered Major Samuel Whitside and the 7th Cavalry. Whitside said he was instructed to take the Indians to the camp at Wounded Knee. Dispirited, the Indians were driven into Wounded Knee and confined. The soldiers forced them to give up their guns, and still not satisfied, they ransacked their possessions and searched their person. Suddenly, during this strip search, one of the Indians fired a shot, and the soldiers retaliated with a furious volley of gunfire. One surviving Indian described the scene, quote, We tried to run, but they shot us like we were buffalo. I know there are some good white people, but the soldiers must be mean to shoot children and women. Indian soldiers would not do that to white children, end quote. When the slaughter ended, more than 150 Indians were dead, while others wounded crawled off to die in the area surrounding the camp. Black Elk, quote, I did not know then how much was ended. When I look back now from this high hill of my old age, I can still see the butchered women and children lying heaped and scattered all along the crooked gulch as plain as when I saw them when my eyes were still young. And I can see that something else died there in the bloody mud and was buried in the blizzard. A people's dream died there. It was a beautiful dream. The nation's hoop is broken and scattered. There is no center any longer, and the sacred tree is dead. End quote. Yellow Wolf the whites told only one side, told it to please themselves, told much that is not true. Only his best deeds and only the worst deeds of the Indian. End quote. Thus ends chapter three, Native Americans. In chapter four, we'll look at what happened to the African Americans, the blacks. Stay tuned.